you would please open in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 5. It is our custom here to stand for the reading of God's word. Please join me in doing so. We do that to set the word of God apart from the word of the servant sent to proclaim it. Scripture teaches that the grass will wither and flowers will fade, but the word of the living God endures forever. Now let's strive to hear and to heed God's word faithfully together. We begin our reading in Acts chapter 5 at verse 33. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, how much do we thank you for your word? It truly is life-giving. It reminds us of our place in this world, and it reminds us of our place in the world to come. We ask now that your spirit would attend to the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, that by the work of the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit receive glory and honor from the church. And so we ask all these things with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You've probably heard the phrase before, throwing down the gauntlet. It is a figure of speech we use when a person reaches something of a breaking or boiling point and resolve that they are willing to suffer or fight for what they believe to be right. In 1637, in Aberdeen, Scotland, a Scottish Presbyterian named Samuel Rutherford sat in prison And he was imprisoned because he dared to defy those in authority who believed that civil magistrates should have authority over the church. And even more importantly, he had been commanded to stop preaching the gospel. And from a prison cell, at the end of a sweet little paragraph, he has this line. Though all the world be silent, we cannot hold our peace. There are times when the church has to put down the gauntlet, and say, though all the world be silent, we cannot hold our peace. And such an occasion is what we see in our text today. We'll walk through our text with the help of our outline and consider together first 
a sin-centered desire to kill. The first point of the sermon in many ways is a dark one as it reflects on the depth and depravity of sin. The leaders of Israel very clearly in verse one to th- verse 33 want to kill the apostles. And here again we're reminded that sin and unbelief are truly irrational. When you think about it, sin and unbelief are truly irrational. Sin promises much, but it always takes more than it gives. It promises pleasure or relief in a moment. Its voice can to us often be found smooth and soothing. And at times, its offers seem almost irresistible. But then, when our guard is dropped, sin tends to have its way with us and always leaves us in the end stripped of our senses, our dignity, and even reason. The men who now want to kill the apostles have lost all sense of reason. And it's remarkable when you think about this because these men are the religious elite of Israel. No one in Israel should know the Bible better than them. No one in Israel should know the Savior and His coming better than them. And no one better than them should know that murder is a sin. They've literally lost their minds. But this is something of a kangaroo court. We've seen it before. These are the very same players that crucified and tried Jesus and ordered him to be put to death. They're as blind to justice as they are to their own destruction. And here again, you see it, and I'll say it once more, sin truly is irrational. Verse 28 suggests their guilt as well as their denial. When they point out or accuse the apostles, by saying, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. At the end of the day, not only have they lost their minds, their singular concern is their own personal well-being and preservation. They were guilty of murder and blind to their guilt. And this is exactly, in a certain sense, beloved, what sin really does. It fights to stay alive. It fights to hold its grip and not lose its place In many ways, it is like a virus capable of multiplying in order to perpetuate itself. And so what do the leaders of Israel want to do? They are willing to once more commit a murder in order to cover up a murder. Sin multiplies sin. They killed Jesus, and now they want to kill the apostles. Sin is never content with a one-off episode. It always wants more. It always craves more, like a cruel animal that must be fed in order to survive. It always wants, it always needs, it always craves. And in many ways, sin and unbelief are two sides of the same coin. Think about all that has now been done in front of these men. Reported to these men. Think of all the miracles that have taken place and the fact that they have had standing in their midst an example and proof thereof. A man who was born blind and spent his entire life crippled, sitting there, I said blind, born crippled, and now stands among them. They witnessed this man. They knew this man. They knew this story, the miracle, and the proof thereof. And then on top of that, the question of how was this man healed, leading to this redundant testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and many, many, many eyewitnesses to his resurrection, many, many, many convert, converts to the new Christian faith. 
But not only were there the miracles and the testimony of witnesses, there were also the scriptures. And these men knew them well. And yet for as well as they knew their scriptures, their unbelief had shut their ears. They were hearing, but not hearing. They were seeing, yet blind as a bat. Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, often quoted in college textbooks, was once asked, what will you say when you stand before God at the time of your death? And he answered, kind of sarcastically, I'll say to God, you did not give me enough evidence. Sin and unbelief are two sides of the same coin, completely irrational and without reason. But do you see the irony, even in what Russell said? You did not give me enough evidence. Who's the judge there? Who's on trial as he stands before God on the other side of his death? Man standing in judgment over God. God has been found wanting, accused of not providing enough evidence to clear his own name. This is really a helpful way of thinking about it because in Acts 5, it is the name of Jesus that the Sanhedrin cannot stand. This becomes the growing epicenter of the entire book of Acts. The name of Jesus grows, and as it grows, so does opposition to that name at the very same time. The thorn and the, and the weeds are growing together. The apostles were not simply forbidden from speaking in general. They were particularly forbidden from speaking in the name of Jesus. That name that saves so many is also the very same name that offends so many. And so what have the Sanhedrin done now at this point in Acts chapter 5? They have thrown down the gauntlet. They are willing not simply to fight, but even to kill in order to cover their tracks. And as they throw down the gauntlet, one man stands up with a cooler mind and a different approach, and his name is Gamaliel. And that takes us to our second point. A wisdom-centered desire to intercede. This is an interesting portion of Scripture. God's grace works through means, and often God's grace works on behalf of his people, even through unbelievers. God rules over all, and he even at times works through unbelievers for the sake of his own people. Gamaliel's role in this event is not simply or easily described as good or bad. In many ways, it's a mixture of both. I kind of wonder what you're thinking as I read the text, as you've read it before. uh, Do you come at this uh, with the assumption that this man is a Christian and that he is defending other Christians? I think that would be far too generous. And we will walk through the reasons why. Don't be too quick in labeling him a Christian. There's no mention in the text here or anywhere else technically of him converting to Christianity in an objective and clear way. He does not here or elsewhere affirm the teaching of the apostles and align himself with that teaching. In short, his interest may be less with preserving the gospel witness and lives of the apostles than simply with preserving his own life and that of the Sanhedrin. But who is this man, Gamaliel? arguably the most, one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history, described here in our text as a man who was held in honor, high esteem by all the people, best known to us 
as the mentor and teacher of the Apostle Paul. It's quite arguable that as you come to Acts 5, it's time for us to begin seeing, if you will, this small looming figure in the background who is the Apostle Paul and will eventually find his way onto the stage. Gamaliel was Paul's teacher, his personal mentor. He was a member of the Hillel family, one of the best known families for their ability to teach the law in Israel. And he had a school, something like a seminary, there in Jerusalem where Saul had studied. There was no mention of Saul being here and present at this meeting of the Sanhedrin. Nearly every commentary you read suggests that he likely was. Why? Because the school was there in Jerusalem. Why? Because the name of the Jesus was a loud ring, a big splash that gathered the attention of many. Why? Because if Saul was a student and mentor, mentee, of Gamaliel, it's quite likely the case that where goes the teacher, there goes his disciple. So you can't prove it. I'm only speculating, but I'm doing it with a lot of friends. But do notice as well that though there's no mention of Paul in this chapter, he shows up in the next when we meet Stephen. And he'll tell us later he was there. How much of a time lapse is there between Acts 5 and Stephen and what takes place, we don't know. But when you think of Gamaliel, you should begin thinking, this is a guy who's on the same page with Saul before he becomes Paul. Either way, Gamaliel offers a cool-minded piece of advice in contrast to the hot-tempered actions of the Sanhedrin. They want to kill the apostles. Gamaliel says, boys, slow down. Let's think this through. He orders the apostles out of the room. You could sense the clout that he has and the fact that they all immediately obey and the Sanhedrin does not push back. And then he walks the Sanhedrin down a brief little tour of recent history, reminding them of two events and two individuals, two insurrectionists, two rebels, two men who tried to overthrow the Romans, the first named Thutis, who gathered a large crowd behind him. Nearly 400 men began to follow him. And very importantly, he's described as someone who thought he was somebody. How many of those have you met? But he was more like a comet. He came in hot, and he burned out quickly. He was killed, and his revolution that spiked died off just as fast. And the point that Gamble's making is, these upstarts have come and gone many times. And he mentions another, Judas the Galilean, who rose up against the Romans during a census, which one we're not sure. Everyone hates taxes and government overreach. Try to withhold your amens. His party became part of the zealots, but they too had faded away. And the point, again, that Gamaliel is making is that both of these men, these upstarts, these rebels, perished, as did their ideas, their followings, and their momentum came to an end. But then Gamaliel moves from, from theology, excuse me, from history to theology. And I wonder here again, what do you think about his advice or his meandering at this point? In verse 38, he suggests uh, to the apostles, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. Just, just be, be careful to not Christianize this guy too much too fast. Anyone could say that. Certainly a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, you don't have to be a Christian uh, at this point to talk this way. What is Gamaliel saying to the Sanhedrin? Leave them alone and let's see what happens. If this plan is of man, it will fail and nothing will come of it. You've seen that many times before. But if this plan is of God, brothers, you will not be able to stop it. You might even be found fighting against God. Is that Christian advice? Eh, Careful. It's pragmatic advice at a minimum. But don't overthink again how Christian Gamaliel is. His advice in many ways is what we would call uh, pragmatic. He sees a better way. He sees an easier way. The Proverbs teach that even a fool seems quiet when he holds his tongue. More importantly, at this point in history, the Romans had not given the Jews power and permission to execute. If the Sanhedrin murders the apostles, the Sanhedrin would be exposed to the Romans. It was the Romans who put Theodos and Judas to death. Gamaliel's point is actually quite savvy, quite brilliant. Why get our hands dirty and risk punishment when we can let the Romans do that work for us? Give it a little time. And what's, what's the saying? If you give a man enough rope, what will he eventually do? He'll hang himself with it. But there are two flaws in Gamaliel's advice, two points of criticism I hope you will agree with. One is there's absolutely zero affirmation of the gospel. Absolutely zero positive reference to the name of Jesus, to the person and the work of Christ. History as well, and this is an important point for the people of God to remember, history is not always the vindicator of just causes. History itself, in the short span of a person's life, is not always the vindicator of just causes. Many righteous people have suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. And many evil people have prospered, sometimes even seemingly in this life, without consequence for their evil deeds. So the righteous don't always win in court. And the wicked don't always get what they deserve in this life. But then comes the end. Gamaliel's advice is fairly good. He has a decent point, but you might describe it this way. It's it's a little bit of wisdom mixed together with a little bit of unbelief. And when you combine wisdom and unbelief, you get pragmatism. There's a better way to handle this, guys. Just give it a little time. Watch and see what will happen. Gamaliel's advice, however, though not entirely sound, nevertheless prevails. But I want you to think about what happens. In reality, what happens is that the apostles are preserved. Who reigns over the hearts of men? Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin. It is God who is the shepherd keeper of his people. It is Jesus who is the leader and the savior of his church. The apostles will die in time. Some of them will be martyred in time, but not this day, not at this moment. God can turn the hearts of kings and even courts just as he has turned the Sanhedrin. And what does this lead to? I really think this next point is interesting. What does this lead to? 
Celebration followed by a beating. Nope. A beating followed by celebration. Our third and final point, a Christ-centered desire to celebrate. The Sanhedrin are willing to listen to Gamaliel. They see a potential way out. The apostles will eventually be put down and destroyed by the Romans, and they themselves will not be liable for it. But notice they don't simply release the apostles. Gamaliel made no suggestion, at least in the text, of beating the apostles, and yet, nonetheless, the apostles are beaten. And beloved, when it says that they beat the apostles, you need to understand the extent and brutality of that beating. The Jews were sort of famous at this moment in history for such beatings. They were not as famous as the Romans, who picked up flogging, if you remember from our time in Ezra Nehemiah, uh, something that they actually learned from the Assyrians. The Jews were not allowed to kill, but they could beat someone to the very edge of death. And so they would deliver what was nicknamed the 40 minus 1. And how does that go down when a man is sentenced to the 40 minus 1? The majority, if not all of his clothes, would be taken off. Leather would be used like a whip, but implanted inside that leather whip would be little pieces, little shards of rock or glass intentionally placed in there so that not simply would the leather uh, leave a red mark on the back, but the rocks or the glass, the small shards of hard material would rip flesh when the whip was withdrawn. Historians describe people that were given the 40 minus 1 their organs often being visibly exposed. Many people who received this beating died that day. So not only were they beat, what was left of them was strictly charged. After they received the 40 minus 1, they were strictly charged, we were told in the text, to not go out and to speak. Look at verse 40. And when they called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. This is language of threat. And what is the charge? That they not speak in the name of Jesus. You should sense in there just a very pregnant, punctuated pause. The name of Jesus now has gathered momentum. The name of Jesus to some is the aroma of life. The name of Jesus to others is the aroma of death. And the apostles, we are told, are charged, strictly warned. It's fierce legal language. It's the language of threat not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And after beating them and charging them this way, they let them go. And the apostles went home and said no more about the name of Jesus. They did the exact opposite. The last verse tells us, and every day, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There are times, beloved, when Christians are called to disobey the civil magistrate. This is precisely one of them. Arguably, the most unambiguous of all of them. How many Christians have gone to jail in history for that name? How many Christians have been strictly charged to stop speaking in that name? How many Christians have been beaten, have received, if you will, the 40 minus 1 
or even made that final confession in their own blood because of the name of Jesus, the answer is many. Beloved, not only have many made that confession unto the end, many more yet will. Many more yet will. And yet, we're told in the text that they went to the temple and then from house to house. What happens to the church when it's persecuted? Do you know what happens to it? It grows. It's one of the most beautiful things, one of the most stunning lessons of history, one of the most unique testimonies to the power of the resurrection is that every time and every place we look at history where the church has been persecuted, it often tends to grow. The more the world tries to snuff out, subdue, put down the name of Jesus, the more God seems to be pleased to raise it up. It's almost as though the church is so bound to the Savior that even in death there is the display of resurrection life. And so the apostles refuse to obey. They cannot obey. They are compelled. They go back to the temple. They're not avoiding the public. And then we're told for the first time, they go house to house. I love that line. I almost began the sermon with a different illustration telling you the name of several OPC ministers who back in earlier decades, like in the 50s and 60s, in Maine, in the Midwest, in Garden Grove, went door to door, house to house doing evangelism. And then that door-to-door evangelism turned into a Bible study. And those Bible studies turned into churches. And many of the churches around this presbytery began exactly that way. And it's actually in many ways the origin of our regional home missionary position. But I knew you wouldn't want to hear that as an opening illustration, so I just put it here. (laughs) But not only did the apostles go back to the temple and then house to house, I think what they did in between is even more impressive. Then they left the presence of the council. You have to picture what these guys would look like, just being beaten like this, bloodied, bruised, worked, exhausted, in need of medical attention. And it says they left the council, the presence of the council, rejoicing. Now that's something. There are a few places where we see this in the Bible. It'll happen again in Philippians. People will be beaten in the middle of the night. What do you find them doing? Singing. Rejoicing. Why? Paul talks this way. Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Why? How can a Christian speak of rejoicing in the very context of suffering? A brutal beatdown. Why? It's because they find fellowship with the one who was beaten and persecuted for them. Say it differently. The apostles know that they are suffering dishonor for the name, that very name that they were just charged not to speak in. But this becomes a beautiful and recurring theme. Again, the center of the book of Acts is the name of Jesus. It's what draws a crowd on the one hand. And many in that crowd are saved. They come sweetly and savingly into that name. And others come violently, oppositionally against that name. That name, the aroma of life, the aroma of death. But for the Christian, what does it mean? 
Even as the Christian suffers for the name of Christ Jesus, it means that Jesus is one who kept his promise. Jesus is the one who said that his disciples were not above him, but be with me, beloved. He didn't simply mean that his disciples were not above him. He also meant that they were not beneath him. At least not in his eyes. For his sake, excuse me, for their sake, he had humbled himself. And he had esteemed them of great value. Those whom the world despises and rejects. Jesus esteemed to be of great value. And of so, such great love did he have for his people that for our sakes, he was the one who foremost and truly was unclothed, rendered for our sakes naked and ashamed. And there he took the 40 minus one. There he took the full brunt the bestiality, the brutality that the apostles deserved. They deserved because they were named with Jesus. But Jesus, beloved, took far more than just a beating. He took for us the wages of our sin. Though falsely condemned, he esteemed you so much that he took our place and he took all the irrational, sinful, depraved beating that sin could muster against them. And it did not end there. It ended at the cross, where there he gave for us his all. There he gave up his life, being crucified for the wages of our sin, so that now the debt could be paid in full. When you think about it, beloved, the apostles were not beaten in order to save anyone. They were beaten because they were saved. In their sufferings, they were manifesting their union with Christ, the one who suffered for them, who bore the cross for them, and then said to them, you too will have to take up little crosses after me, and this is the way that you shall go. And this, beloved, is the honest story of the church in history, that being united to Christ comes with great joy and remarkable privilege, because we're united to one who has already triumphed over sin and its irrationality, already triumphed over death and its seeming victory. And we too have the promise of everlasting life and eternal glory with him. But as comes the crown, so comes the cross in this world. Being united to Christ comes with a great joy and a great privilege, but being united to Christ, beloved, also comes with being united to his cross. You might not like it, but that does not make it less true. We have the promise of eternal life and even now fellowship with God in the Spirit, but we also, beloved, have the privilege of bearing little crosses and even at times taking little beatings that might not feel so little. But just as the apostles come out on the other side rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, so can all of Christ's people rejoice when they too suffer for the name of their Savior. The world still hates it, and the world will keep hating it until the very end. In fact, you might say it this way, the world hates the name of Jesus almost as much as you love it. But we endure our sufferings with hope, and not only with hope, but even with joy, because of the power and the promise of the resurrection. As went the Son, so now go his servants. And even Jesus knew joy as he looked beyond the cross to the crown, that there was something more than this beating, 
that there is something more than that cross. No matter how much the world would press him down, Jesus never stopped looking up. And as we begin to land the plane, I would ask just a couple of questions. Where are your eyes fixed when you at times suffer for the name? Where are your eyes fixed when you sometimes go through trial and tribulation in this world? Do we gaze together upon the cross as a wonderful means of hope? Do the eyes of faith look beyond the cross to the crown that awaits us in glory? And are you capable in a way that would be bewildering to the world, beloved, to rejoice even in the midst of your suffering, knowing that through them you find even closer, even sweeter fellowship with your Savior and his great name? The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's faith. That's a lot of faith, but it's a faith formed by our union with Christ. The world will forever hate the name of Jesus, and the church will forever love it. But what does God want from his church? What are we called to do? What does this text call the church to do? Well, we are called to lift up the name of Jesus. Part of the church's mission to the end of the age is to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus, and not only where it's easy, but even where it's difficult. Cornelius Van Til said in a sermon that I, in many ways, appreciate this line and also find it very difficult, that God wants his church to be bold for him. And if we are not bold for him, he will humble us so that we will more boldly proclaim his name. But when you think about it, it's as true as it is hard. What do your trials and sufferings make you? They make you humble. And in the midst of those humbling providences, we actually become more bold. In the midst of our trials, we actually become more bold. When Rutherford was in prison that day, and he said, Though all the world be silent, we cannot hold our peace. In the same paragraph, he said, these prison walls need salvation. And if the birds outside and the lilies can sing his name freely, am I not free inside this prison to sing his name just as well? Whether in prison, beloved, or walking outside of the lilies, you are free to lift up the name of Jesus. So proclaim it. Let's pray. Oh Lord and our God, we thank you for that name, that matchless name that is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel at the testimony of the apostles that as soon as they were beaten and probably barely able to walk or speak, they left there not only rejoicing, it would appear that they went right back at it, back to the temple, and then going, walking house to house as their wounds slowly were healed. We ask, Lord, that you would give us such great faith. You might not call us to be apostles. You might not call us to endure the 40 minus 1. But you do call us to lift up the name of Jesus. You do tell us that as the world has hated you, so also will it hate us. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to find our place with the world, that we would not confuse friendship 
with the world as some sort of good means, but rather, O Lord, that we would love you and walk hand in hand with you. And if you are pleased to humble us on occasion, even to allow us to endure persecution, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice and to lift up that beautiful name. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.